Father, we thank you that we have meaning and purpose because you live and that all of our life is really contained in two words, in Christ. And today as we examine a, a robust text, I pray that you'd help us to see what it means to have an in Christ mindset, how to live practically and tangibly. Oh God, I, I long for our church to be marked by verses 19 to 21 of Romans 12. I, I, I long for my life to be marked by what is here. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and apply your word, do something that only you can do in our lives as we hear your word and as we think about how it applies to our lives. And so help us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 12, 9 to 21 is our text this morning. You've already heard it read so wonderfully along with a mingling of other passages. Today we're going to talk about the recipe for gospel-centered living. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of the famed Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England in the 1800s, and he longed for his people to be saturated with the word of God such that it affected the way that they thought and the way that they lived. To help his people, Spurgeon held up the example of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He said this about Bunyan and his writings. He said, Bunyan, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. And if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know what he's talking about. If, if you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, this is your summer to do that. Because as you read Pilgrim's Progress, you will see the amazing integration of Bunyan's Bible saturation in his narrative. He does indeed seem to bleed the Bible. It's all over the story. But Spurgeon used the example of Bunyan in order to exhort his congregation about the importance of having their lives shaped by the word of God. He envisioned Christians who were consumed with the Bible. In fact, he compared them to silkworms. So, so children, this summer when you see a, a worm a caterpillar, which in our house we're not allowed to kill because they're very cute and adorable, although they do eat trees, just so you know. When you see a silkworm, when you see a caterpillar of any kind, I want you to think about this text. Because Spurgeon used the example of silkworms. He wanted his church to be like silkworms in regards to the consumption of the Bible. Here's what he said. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord, not ever, not crawl ever its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. 
It's that last little phrase that captured my attention this week, the idea of having a spirit, a heart, a life that is flavored with the words of the Lord. Does that describe you? Is your flavor Christian? Do you bleed the Bible? Our text today helps us understand how that kind of Christianity was supposed to work. And what Paul does here is give us a list of virtues or a list of behaviors, a recipe, if you will, as to what Christian character should look like. So after talking about what it means to be a living sacrifice, and then after talking about how to use our gifts, Paul now helps us to see that this Christian mindset is supposed to show up in attitudes, in actions, and how we live. In other words, our aim today, my aim, is that when you leave here and as you live the next week of your life that you'll be different. And that there'll be something so unusually different about you that people wonder what's going on inside of you that you live this way. Have you ever had a conversation with someone or been introduced to them and it's not long, you haven't talked at all about spiritual things, but just by the way they conduct themselves, the way they talk, you start to wonder, I think this person actually might be a follower of Jesus. I've had it before where I'm watching the news and I see a newscaster or I hear somebody, watch someone being interviewed and I think, you know what? I think that's a, that person's a follower of Jesus. And sure enough, as I have opportunity to meet them, invariably, yes, indeed they are. There's something beautiful and winsome and powerful about what it means to have the mind of Christ. The question we deal with today is this, how should Christians live? Now you need to know that this passage is very difficult to outline. And typically I give you one big idea, maybe three, four, at the max, five points. Well, today there's 15. <laughs> so be encouraged. <laughs> My wife asked me yesterday, so how's, how's your sermon? I said, it, it, it's really overwhelming. And she said, what do you mean? I said, it's, I went through this list and I, and I find myself just overwhelmed with the beauty of the picture of what I see, but also overwhelmed with how much I don't look like this. How much our church, while wonderful, doesn't look like this, and how much our world needs people who look like Romans 12, 9 to 21. So how do Christians live? What should College Park Church be like? What should your family be like? How do you live Monday through Saturday, next week? Here it is. It's 15 points. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> First, we're called to live sincerely. Verse nine, let love be genuine. He starts with love, which could be the summary word really for verses nine to 13. Some think that love is the main theme and that all of the verses nine to 13 reflect love. That could be, or it could just be that once again, Paul has identified that if there's to be one thing that's supposed to mark a Christian, and if there's to be one thing that should mark a Christian couple, or if there's one thing that should mark a Christian family, if there's one thing that should mark a Christian single person, if there's one thing that should mark a Christian church, that it should be love. I mean, Jesus said this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. So love was supposed to be the chief characteristic of Jesus' disciples. At the end of the day, what we need to be is a people who are filled with love. 
However, it's supposed to be a special kind of love. He says, let love be genuine. Why does he say that? He says that because he knows people. He knows that there's a difference between being nice and really loving people. I mean, you can kind of get by in life if you're friendly. You can get by being civil. But Paul's talking about more than that because he knows, I think, that underneath our civility and our friendliness and our niceness is often an insincerity. I mean, some of the scariest people in the world, I think, are people who act nice, but they're really not. Kind of freaky. Like, for example, in Toy Story 3, The character, Lots O'Huggin Bear, he's got a southern drawl, he's really nice, but he's really mean. Or Ray's mom in Everyone Loves Raymond, I mean, she just, the woman comes on the screen and freaks me out because she's just wicked. And some of you grew up in cultures where everything was nice on the outside and then privately it was wicked. And what Paul is talking about here in terms of the vision of a church is not just a church that's friendly. I want our church to be friendly. Not just a church that's filled with nice people. Nice is nice. Better than mean people. A church that's civil. You know the images? It's of people who really love one another, who care for one another, who have affection for one another who love with a depth and a genuineness that is stunning, that's attractive, and that's refreshing, and also that's unusual. Tertullian, an early church apologist, said that the Romans, when they observed how Christians treated one another, would say, see how they love one another. The church is to be marked by sincere love. Secondly, the church is to be marked in her living by living purely. Believers are not only to love one another, but they are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So the ESV here renders this word abhor, same word that means hate, and hold fast to what is good, meaning that the believer's posture towards good and evil cannot be passive. Evil is not to be tolerated, it is to be hated, and good is not just to be hoped for, it's something that is to be clung to. Church, we need to think about this because we live in a culture that's always been filled with all kinds of evil, but there is a sense in which the toleration of evil and the toleration of things that are impure is becoming easier and easier. And you need to know that impurity doesn't just come out of nowhere. Impurity happens as it weasels its way into our lives such that we're no longer shocked or repulsed by the evil in our world, in our culture, in one another, in the church, and in ourselves. Because of everything that's around us and how much we're, we're inundated with evil things that are coming at us, we, we, we become numb to it such that we are no longer shocked. We no longer abhor it. We no longer hate it. We just kind of don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable or, ooh, wish I hadn't seen or heard or said that. And Paul has in mind here the kind of evil 
that can destroy Christian relationships and Christian community, things like gossip and slander, bitterness, hurtful words, anger, lying, selfishness, racism, pride, sexual sin, and a host of other sins that are harmful, not just individually, but they are destructive to the purity of the church and the sense of community that we belong to one another. And what Paul says here is that a Christian mindset hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Can I just give you an assignment for this week? Maybe to pray throughout the course of this week as you begin, God, help me to hate evil, not just not deal with it and not to avoid it, but help me to hate it. Like, I hate that. That's wrong. I hate that in the world. I hate this in me. I hate this. I want it to be gone. We're to love sincerely. We're to love purely. Third, we are to love affectionately. Similar to the word love, but it's a different word. It means brotherly affection. The idea of of love that one would have for family This was especially important during seasons of persecution where this brotherly affection was more than a feeling. It was very practical since when someone became a follower of Jesus, it often divided families. And the result was that the church was not just feeling like family, I mean straight up the church was family. And the reason was is because the other family had abandoned you. For those of you who grew up in unbelieving homes and still have unbelieving families, you know a little bit about what this text is talking about because it's something so odd that you go to a family reunion and you're hanging out with your own flesh and blood and you have less in common with them than you have with people in your small group or in your adult Bible fellowship class or friends that you have in this body who don't even come from the same background and yet you have a more deep kinship with them than you have with your own people. And frankly, that's the way that it should be. Paul also says we should outdo one another in showing honor. The idea is that we have a mindset that other people are simply more important than us. And so the church is designed to be and commanded to be, in its essence, deferential to one another because we're part of the same family, because we belong to one another. So there needs to be a brotherly affection as it relates to the body of Christ. We're to live sincerely, we're to live purely, we're to live affectionately forth, we are to live passionately, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. What Paul is talking about here is a passionate connection to the body of Christ. It means that when you woke up this morning and your alarm went off and you realized it was Sunday, I hope that for most of you the thought was, yes. But I suspect that for some of you the thought was, oh, I gotta see those people. (laughs) Three statements that Paul gives here. And all these relate to attitudes. And so the question is, what kind of attitude do you have when you walked in the door? As you pulled up in the parking lot, what was your attitude? He says, do not be slothful in zeal, meaning that believers are not to be lazy in their commitment to one another. They should make efforts to be engaged in one another's lives. They they walk in the door of this church and they're like, who can I talk to, who can I bless, who can I get connected to, as opposed to keep your head down, find your seat, sit down, listen and leave and don't talk to anybody. That's not what church is supposed to be. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in in spirit. The, The word spirit can either mean 
internal spirit, like your spirit, or it could mean the Holy Spirit. We're not sure exactly. There's a, a textual issue there. Regardless, the, the meaning is that there's an idea of a bubbling, boiling, or constant activity internal to you that pushes you to be involved in the lives of others. And finally, we are called to serve the Lord. See, while we're, while we're pouring ourselves into other people who are part of the body, we are always to be aware that our ultimate service is not to them, our ultimate service is to the Lord, that we are living sacrifices. So you wanna be a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice is passionate about the body of Christ. So we live passionately, here's next, fifth, we live steadfastly. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The fifth description describes how we are to take the long view when it comes to how we live our lives. And Paul gives three statements here regarding steadfast living. First, he says rejoice in hope. This is the overarching theme of perseverance where believers endure by rejoicing in the hope that awaits them. This is a fundamentally unique characteristic of the followers of Jesus. They endure suffering by hoping in what awaits them. So their hope is not in an easy life. If you came to church today hoping that you could find Jesus and then everything in your life's just gonna go great, I got Good news and bad news for you. The good news is that you can be forgiven of your sins. The bad news is, is now you're an enemy to Satan in the world and life is gonna be very difficult. And yet in the midst of that, there's hope because you don't live for this lifetime, you live for the treasure that is reserved and kept and guarded for you in heaven, as says Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 2. Paul said this in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. This is a very unusual way to live. Someone were to say to you, how can you rejoice in your sufferings? The answer is right there in the text because I know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. He then says, be patient in tribulation. Patient means to bear up under. It's the Greek word hupomone. It means that you come to the trial, you come to the tribulation, and instead of running away from it, instead of escaping, you bear up under it. So you, you flee temptation, but you bear up under trial. That's the point. Third, the text calls us to be constant in prayer, meaning that the community of faith is to be continually marked by devotion to prayer especially when the people of God are facing opposition. So this whole idea of steadfastness, you know what Paul is driving at here? He's driving at the importance of the role of church, the importance of the role of the body of Christ when people are suffering and struggling. Because what happens when we gather together, we are celebrating our common hope that we have. We are helping one another endure. We're praying for each other as we make it through difficult moments. So you need to know that living steadfastly is a community project. There are some of you who are trying to endure and make it through hardship and you're doing it all by yourself. That's a bad way to do it. You shouldn't do it that way. In fact, it's a proud way to do it. 
You don't want to let anybody in because you don't want anyone to know you're struggling. You don't want to be honest to say, this is really hard. And you begin to think that no one can understand my sufferings because my sufferings are unlike anyone else who's ever lived on the planet. That's not true. And you're missing the beauty of what it means for people to come into your world and help you walk through difficult and deep waters. A Christian mindset says, let's walk through this steadfastly and together. Christians are also to live sixth, generously. The body of Christ is marked by helping people in their need. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So a Christian mindset is reflected in that you see your money and you see your possessions differently. You see them as a means of grace to others. And this is where being a living sacrifice becomes very, very practical. I mean, if you wanna be a living sacrifice, then listen to me, you need to give. Whether it's to this church or some other church or some other ministry, the fact of the matter is you cannot be a living sacrifice and not give. Are you quick to meet the needs of people with your possessions? Are you quick to meet the needs of people with your time? Do you open your home to people? Sacrificial giving and Christian hospitality make unique and clear statements to the world about who we really are and what we really love. One of the beautiful legacies of this church, one that I joined just seven years ago, is the way in which we have given to unreached people groups and underserved peoples in the city through our Christmas offering. And when we were beginning to figure out how we were gonna build this building and fund it in the middle of the Great Recession, with a $20 million um, building project and a $16 million capital need, I remember somebody along the line asking me if it would be wise if for a couple years we took a break from the Christmas offering. The idea was this, you, you can't really ask people to give to a building and ask them to give generously to missions, so let's just put the missions giving aside. And my answer to that person was, man, I'm not touching that. Because I'm telling you, there is something really special that the more that this church is given away, the more the Lord is blessed in terms of helping us financially. I mean, we've seen that happen. The summer will be debt-free on this entire facility, and in the midst of all of that's happened, had two of our largest Christmas offerings ever. And as elders, we're thinking, we're praying about next year's budget and what that means, starting a campus and Fishers, helping church plants outside of our church inside the 465 Beltway. What does it mean to invest more money in local outreach and global outreach? Our goal is to get our budget so that we're given 30% next year away to ministries outside of what's happening here. And part of the reason why we wanna do that is because we want you to see that in the budget there's a modeling of what generosity looks like so that hopefully you'll see that and realize, you know what? I need to have my checkbook look like it's more generous. Number seven, graciously. Now, verse 14 is a little bit of a change. Before Paul was talking inside the community, now he's talking more outside. He'll go back to inside, and then he'll go back to outside again. That's why this is so difficult to outline. That's why I have 15 points. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> verse 14 changes the direction of the text, and he, he provides instructions here as to how we are to deal with unfair treatment and persecution. And what does he say? He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And what he says is that the overall flavor of the Christian community is to be one of graciousness even, listen carefully, even 
when we are treated unfairly, even when the world would expect some kind of retaliation, persecutors are not to be cursed. In fact, twice in the text, they are to be blessed. And so one of the revolutionary concepts, one of the countercultural dynamics of Christianity is that instead of seeking revenge or instead of striking back or hitting back or spitting back, a Christian mindset embraces, I'm gonna receive that hurt and I'm gonna bless you such that the world would look at the church and go, how do you do that? Parents, you need to teach your children this. Kids, you have siblings, right, in your home, some of you still, and they're not always nice, right? Travel in a car, someone does something mean. You get to practice verse 14. Now granted, you're, don't tell your mom, hey, Johnny's persecuting me back here. That's not <laughs> technically true. But it is a good opportunity to put into practice that there's something inside a human being that says, you hit me, I hit you. You say that, I'm gonna say this. You post this on Facebook, I'm gonna post that. You tweet this, I'm gonna tweet that. You Instagram this, I'm gonna Instagram that. And we find all these ways in order to get our pound of flesh. And parents, it's important from a very early age to teach your child, look, there's something bigger here than just getting even. And there's something uniquely Christian. And I think that our children are gonna need to understand this in a way more significantly perhaps than we've ever had to. Number eight. Empathetically. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Very simply, it means don't be an emotional island. Don't be only concerned about your emotions. It means that you're to be connected to other people's joys. When they succeed, you cheer them on. You got a promotion? Wonderful. Found out you're pregnant? Wonderful. Rejoice with those who rejoice, which is often harder than weeping with those who weep. To celebrate when a friend gets promoted and you don't. To celebrate when a couple finds out they're pregnant and you're, you're not. To, to celebrate when some kid turns his life around to Christ and yours doesn't. That, that's hard. And yet that's what it means to have a Christian mindset. That there's something bigger than just my emotions and I'm connected to other people. By belonging to one another, we enter into the joys and the sorrows of each other's lives. And essentially to be a follower of Jesus means that we no longer live for just ourselves. The gospel means that everything is not just about you. Number nine, harmoniously. We're to live in a way that reflects the word harmony. Likely what Paul had in mind here is the interconnectedness between Jews and Gentiles. That it's believed that there was some sort of Roman edict at one point in time that banished all of the Jewish Christians or all the Jews outside of Rome. So the Roman church was established by Gentiles mostly and then the Jews started to come back into Rome and there would have been racial conflicts between them. And what Paul has in mind is this, you need to have the same attitude, the same mindset where there is harmony where you have two individuals who are unique, like two notes on a piano, yet when played together make a beautiful sound by their combination that individually they're still, in, they're, they're still unique and yet they create something beautiful and attractive. 
It says that we need to live harmoniously in the midst of our differences. Number 10, we're to live humbly. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. You know what the word conceited means? It means that you think you know what is right. Never be conceited. The underlying source of harmony is humility. And the church is to be marked by people who do not think arrogantly about themselves. That's what the text means, don't be haughty. And also by those who don't think they know it all. Don't be conceited. Look, you want to ruin a Bible study? You want to tank your small group? You want to ruin a vision trip? Just be arrogant and be a know-it-all. The church is to be characterized by people who love one another regardless of their status, people who are concerned about each other. That's what he says, associate with the lowly, meaning don't have relationships just with influential people. Don't just have relationships with people who advance your social or political or relational status in life. You're to associate with all kinds of people. Why? Because there's a commonality, a brotherly affection, a love that we have, and also there's a recognition that I'm not anybody special. Now verse 17, we're to live kindly. Verses 17 to 21 carry the same theme of dealing with hard circumstances. How do you respond to people when you are treated unfairly? Or how do you respond when you are treated in a manner that is just straight up evil? Paul's answer is twofold. First, he says that believers are not to repay evil for evil. Verse 17, it says it very clearly, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And what does he mean by honorable in the sight of all? It means that the world takes note when you don't retaliate. Why? Because everybody else does, that's why. A lack of retaliation is recognized by non-believers as honorable and commendable, and responding to evil with kindness, with control, and with non-retaliation is a stunning and very effective statement to the world. It essentially says, my motivation is something beyond what you can possibly imagine, and so I'm not gonna retaliate. But do you know how much control that takes? How much Christ-likeness that takes? Do you feel the weight of this? I remember as a kid, the first time I, 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 I put this into practice, and, and thankfully my parents taught me this, there was a, a bus driver, I'll never forget, she, she, was, she was mean. Even her name was mean, it was Mrs. Van Dunzelar. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's a scary name. You know, it just sounded like, <laughs> you know, Van Dunzelar. And, and I don't know what was up with Mrs. Van Dunzelar. If you listen to this message today, Mrs. Van Dunzelar, I love you, I'm sorry, but she just didn't, didn't like her job. And I don't know why she was driving kids around, because she didn't seem to like kids. And, and particularly, she didn't like me. And I don't know why, and, but Mrs. Van Dunzelar didn't like me. And so I told my parents about this, and my, I think it was my mom suggested, well, why don't we make her some bread, and we'll give her some bread. And I was like, give her bread? She doesn't eat 
bread, she eats kids. You know, I was like, <laughs> this is crazy. But we did it. She gave me a loaf of bread. I remember walking up to the bus and she opened the door and her usual kind of grumpy face. And I said, Mrs. Van Dunzeler, this is for you. And she took it and she smiled. I'd never seen Mrs. Van Dunzeler smile. And it, it changed our relationship. I mean, for the rest of the year, I was like this with Mrs. Van Dunzeler. And it demonstrated something really powerful to me, that, that sometimes it's really important to think, how can I overcome, and we'll see this in a moment, how can I overcome evil with good? But that isn't the way that we naturally think, is it? Number 12, we're called to live peaceably in verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a really helpful passage, especially if you struggle feeling guilty when people are upset with you. Some of you have that personality. No matter what the conflict is, you just feel bad if there's conflict, and you assume because there's conflict, you've done something wrong. Well, this text is a really helpful place to recognize that there are some times when peace just isn't possible. I mean, Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you, right? So you don't wanna make that your life verse, right? But at the same time, you can't live as if peace is the ultimate prize at any price. Because there are some times when people will not like you because they don't like what you believe. They don't like the Bible. They don't like the ethical standards that come from the scriptures. And so the text says, as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes reconciliation and harmony are just not possible no matter how hard you try, and yet the believer should always long for peace. Number 13 is really important. It comes out of verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This passage is incredibly important because it means this, that when people do things that are wrong to you, you're not to repay them, but what do you do about the problem of injustice? It bothers me sometimes that when people talk about this idea of not repaying evil or under the banner of forgiveness, that the topic of justice is never brought up. Because if you had something done to you in the past or if someone's un treated you unfairly, there is a legitimate justice issue that's in play. The difference is, though, that it's not your role to enact that justice. The mentality of a Christian is this, that I am going, instead of taking my own pound of flesh, instead of enacting my own justice, I'm gonna trust that God, at one point in time, will make everything right, he will settle all accounts, he will enact full and appropriate justice, and until that day, I'm simply gonna stand in this position and say, God, this hurts, but I'm not God, and you are. Therefore, I'm not gonna retaliate, and I'm gonna leave it to you to take care of. And friend, when you do that, there is a level of freedom because it's not your fight. The believer is simply acknowledging that it's not my place to deliver justice and instead entrusts himself or herself to the one who judges justly. Some of you 
need to stop trying to get revenge. You need to stop replaying conversations in your mind over and over and over and over. It's doing nothing to your heart that's helpful. Instead, you need to lay it at God's feet and say, I'm done with this. This is your thing, not mine. I'm gonna be kind, I'm gonna love, I'm gonna be gracious, and I'm gonna trust that one day you're gonna settle this all out. 14, from verse 20. Not only are we not to repay, but we are to be merciful. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. The idea is that enemies are not just to be not repaid. Enemies are actually to be treated as friends since this is the way that God through Christ has treated us. What's more, there is a connection again in this passage to future judgment when the text says heap burning coals upon their head. This, in Old Testament context, is likely another reference to God's future judgment. And so therefore, a believer is free to be merciful because even in their being merciful, they roll the judgment to God's responsibility. You're not merciful in order to create further judgment but you are merciful because of future judgment. And when this is embraced, when enemies are loved and cared for as if they're friends, it opens the door wide open for unbelievable gospel conversations. There's sections of the world right now where Muslims are having to flee their own countries and Christians are providing food and shelter and helping them and creating this question. Why would you, as a Christian, treat me as a Muslim this way? My people hate your people and that is a beautiful opportunity to talk about grace in Christ. And finally, number 15, here we are. You made it, verse 21. Do not be overcome with evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. He ends with another summary statement. At the beginning, he started with this call to love and this series of practical expressions of that love, and now he concludes with this final exhortation about how to live in the midst of a world that's filled with evil. And the overarching stance of a believer is, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So followers of Jesus then are not to allow the evil that is done to them to overwhelm them such that they respond in a similar fashion. So when someone does something to you that's unfair, be careful, don't repay, don't retaliate, and as much as you can, be at peace, even going further, overcome evil with good. We conquer evil by doing good to people who do not deserve it. And we let God take care of all the injustice issues. And in so doing, what we do is we place our hope on God's ability to be God. Do you see how this, these 15 characteristics create a flavor of what a Christian mindset should look like? And do, do you feel the, feel the weight of this? I mean, any one of these are difficult and challenging, but all of them together describes the beauty, potentially, of what the Christian community could be and look like, and as well, the level of witness that we would have in the community if these things were true of us. Listen, this text is over, overwhelming. As I studied it and worked through it, 
I found myself reflecting how, how much grace we need to take these words and then to live them out. When taken together, this list would be absolutely impossible if it were not for the grace of God. So if there's anything on this list that you hear and go, I don't know how in the world I could do that, that's a great place to start because God by his spirit can help you. This list is also convicting. And I hope that as we walk through these adverbs and these characteristics that you found yourself a bit convicted and exhorted. These ideas in this passage are really important and yet also they're challenging, are they not? We all could grow. What's more, church, this list is countercultural. It's striking to me how radical these 15 characteristics really are in comparison to the culture around us. And as I read through this text, I found my heart saying, man, if we could be like this, you know what the world would say about the church? If you could be like this in your neighborhood, if your family could be like this, if our church could be like this, you know how beautiful this would be? If we could bleed these 15 characteristics, you know how strong our witness would be? As people were like, what in the world? You just took a hit and you didn't hit back, why? How come you're loving people who are unkind to you? How come you're so gracious and loving of people who come from different walks of life within your church? How come when I walk into your church, the people aren't just nice and friendly, they actually love one another and pray for one another and they give to one another, that, that in so doing, the church would be this island in the midst of a sea of chaos in our culture. That's the image. If these words could describe our church, the powerful witness would be unbelievable. And so therefore, my hope, my prayer is this, that God would help us to live sincerely, to live purely, affectionately, passionately, steadfastly, generously, graciously, empathetically, harmoniously, humbly, kindly, peaceably, trustingly, mercifully, and intentionally, that we would be his kind of people, the kind of people that when you prick us, we bleed the character of Christ, and we go out into the community and absorb hardship and love one another deeply and care for one another financially, forgive one another easily, and at the end of the day, when the world says, why are you like this? The answer is because of Christ, because I'm a living sacrifice. And because he has rescued me from myself and placed me in a body of believers called the church. And there's nothing more glorious than this group of people who all have the mind of Christ, who bleed the very character of Jesus. So what's your flavor you bleed the character of Christ? Do you want to bleed the character of Christ? May God help us to be the kind of people who are the flavor of the, resur- of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being in him and through him and for him. Father, we pray now that you'd help us to be the kind of people who go out into the world, who would live lives reflective of these beautiful words, these words that at one level seem so impossible, and yet by your spirit can be ours. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed, where we have retaliated, ways that we have become bitter, ways that we've taken our pound of flesh. God, help us to be the kind of people who love one another deeply. Make this church a sanctuary of grace. 
and help us to bleed the very heart and character of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.